my body's fine. My face is fine. Um, <laughs> Can you just have that on the loop with a dance beat? <laughs> In a very monotone delivery. My body's fine. My face is fine. Totally. Hello. What are you Hi. wearing? Um, I am wearing a Return of the Living Dead Part 2 t-shirt. You know, that was probably the first one that I saw. And the thing that stuck with me the most is when she opens the door to her boyfriend, who's now a zombie, <laughs> and she, they hug each other, and he just takes a big old chomp out of her hair, <laughs> out of her skull. And that... that th him pulling away hair and gore in his mouth did it for me. Okay. I, I don't actually love this movie. <laughs> I don't not. either, but I do love the box art from the it's video store. Fantastic box One art. One of the best. I yeah. love I love an eerie cloud. It it reminds me of the same thing from Fright Night. Yeah, the monster. Fright Night Cloud and Dream Warriors. And and, and even uh Dream Master. With yes. like the glowing face and the and the car, I love it. Junkyard, loved Ugh. it. So Roman, yes, you and I made a film. I don't know if you remember this, but we <laughs> did, and <laughs> it was a documentary. That mind me is, when it's a it's called Scream Queen: My Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, yeah, that's coming back. I do remember being on the road with you all all last year for this film. Right. And which was incredible. I'm yeah. very glad that we had that opportunity, especially now in post post uh Rona. Yeah. Well where travel we, is we really have been very fortunate with this film. Like even when we thought, oh my God, how are we gonna get over this hump? And then looking back and going, wow, that was like a pretty smooth ride for the most part. And so it was really great to be able to travel for an entire year and meet people everywhere, go everywhere, share emotional moments with people across the country was very surprising. Right. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting that. I think we were both really cognizant of making a film we wish that we had had when we were younger. And I feel like it's not an accident that people are picking up on that and latching onto it. And the amount of messages that have come in of people being like, I had no idea about any of this. Thank you so much for showing me a side of the 80s that doesn't get depicted in Stranger right. Things or other things of this uh, nostalgia trap we're living in. I mean, I knew, I, I always knew that like being the role of mentorship was something that I needed to pick up but being able to actually exercise that and go out and meet people. I mean, this is my contribution. You know, I'm not, I'm not the warm, loving social type like some people. <laughs> I, I, I'm more of an introvert. You're and as I like, cuddly as a cactus. Kind of. Yeah. It's like petting a cat backwards with me sometimes if you say the wrong thing. So, but, but that doesn't mean that I can't contribute in my own ways. And I feel right. like this was my way was being right. able to give dialogue to the people that need it. Exactly. You know? I, I think similarly with this podcast, you and I are kind of reaching a hand back to ourselves two years ago when we were in the thick of editing our first feature film with like no idea what kind of horrible mess we had gotten ourselves <laughs> into. And 
I like to demystify that. Like, it's okay to not have all the answers right away. I want to talk to other filmmakers who have found themselves in the same situation and found a way through. You know, you and I had each other and we had Mark. We were like a group. Right. And <clears throat> along with that, we had people that were joining our group because it was exciting to have a celebrity there. Everybody loves Freddy Krueger. Uh, so, you know, I think we had it easy in some regards. And we've met so many people on the road with their films. And there yeah. are other people we met who are there by themselves, you know? Right. And, and that, navigating that world on your own. And also being, I mean, most filmmaking people are a little socially awkward. Yes. I so, myself am one of them. And it's right. hard to like get thrown into a festival circuit where you're supposed to be making these connections to people to hopefully further your career. At the same time being like, I don't know how to talk about myself or what I do. I just do yeah. it. And I'm hoping that you can see that and want to hire me to do it for you. So these festivals will, it, if your movie gets accepted, they will, you know, often fly you to the event and put you in a hotel or you figure out some way that you can travel there and stay and go present your movie to a crowd of people on a stage and if you're there by yourself that's a lot it's not even just the stage presence it's go to a party and get a cocktail and you're surrounded by right. hundreds of people <clears throat> by yourself and what does that you know i think everybody can put themselves in that scenario you're in a strange place and you got to have a good time. So <laughs> one of the one of the best things I am thankful for is I moved to New York City from Minneapolis with the intent like I'm going to be a filmmaker and I'm finally going to be in a place where other filmmakers come in and show their works and I got to go to Lincoln Film Society and see movie premieres and the directors would come on stage and do a Q&A like that was never possible for me in Minnesota where I grew up and suddenly now I'm in the room I'm watching the films I'm hearing from the creators talk about their process and most of them are super socially awkward and they and I was like oh like you don't need to be this like totally camera ready persona to be allowed to make films and sometimes the films speak better for people yeah. than they do in Q and A's and seeing that kind of demystified being like, Oh, okay. There's some magic involved in making a film and getting it done, but people can do it. You can do it as well. That's true. But didn't you also notice on the road that uh, we were constantly trying to improve that in ourselves because it right. made things <clears throat> a lot easier and right. that, the sad thing is that as an artist, you then have to switch gears and be a salesman or at least the face of your movie for a minute. Right. That was the the, the most uh, important education I got from Mr. Mark Patton. Yeah. It's like, you don't swallow your words. Get up on that stage and tell the story. Yeah. That's what, that's what they're coming for. Like your job as a storyteller does not stop when the movie's done and in theaters, your job is to continue telling stories forever. Yeah. It was, it, I, I definitely didn't have any, uh, I mean, I'm a little nervous to get on a stage in front of hundreds of people at times or the opposite in front of five people. That's, you know, <laughs> but I'm okay with that for the most part. It's being authentic 
that is important to me. If I feel like I have to be really rehearsed and uh, <laughs> give a speech, it's much more difficult. But if I could go up there and speak from the heart, I don't have a problem with public speaking. But there are so many other things that go into it. Uh, you know, like for us, we were in a different place every week, sometimes every couple days. Right. It was like you have to constantly be on. And that was different because I'm used to my solace and my solitude. Um, and you don't have that. But one of the best experiences having gone through the festival circuit is seeing who shows up at your movie. Mm -hmm. And one of the best times we had was at Outfest in Los Angeles. We, they, the whole Elm Street crew showed up. We had Robert England. We had all the cast members from every single one of the films in the audience, as well as friends and family of yours. There's a photo of us that we took when everyone was in watching the movie and we went up to the balcony. They had set up that upper balcony that was just for the, the Elm Street actors uh, which I thought we were going to have a few of them. I didn't realize it was going to be everybody, which was fantastic. Um, <laughs> right. But everyone went in to watch the movie. So you and I went back up to the balcony and we took a picture and you could see the worry <laughs> on our faces. <laughs> like we were trying to look happy because we were like, wow, we did it. But like I look at it, I'm going to send you this picture. I have <laughs> never, <laughs> I have never seen two people look more anxiety ridden Ever. Right, right. I I wore a suit. It was like, <laughs> I'm going to be on the red carpet and I need to look proper. And I think I was sweating buckets. Yes. yes. You were constantly giving me tissue paper to wipe off the glisten <laughs> of my forehead. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. It's not going to go anywhere. It's just going to keep coming. I remember we talked because we'd been through a number of different places. I said, when we go to LA, it's going to be different because I'm from there. I'm going to have a lot of friends there. And, right. you know, my very, very dearest, closest friends are there. And you were able to meet my very good friend, Clint Catalyst. And right. He let us stay in his house. Yep. And thank you, Clint. He, we moved to LA together from San Francisco when we were just wee little kids. And we we paved our way. And then I moved to New York and he stayed there. And I was also friends with Darren Stein, who is the director, as most people know, of Jawbreaker. And Clint and Darren are super close. And uh, my other super good friend, Violet, was there. <laughs> and all of these people know each other. It was a reunion of sorts. I hadn't been back there in so many years. Just, just so that the audience knows, Roman, you were like club kid famous. <laughs> um, I... I don't you were know a style that. icon. You were Eddie Monster in drag glitter. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but. Okay, well, I went out a lot. <laughs> that was basically it. We went out a lot. We wore a lot of makeup. I worked at a lot of clubs and we had a lot of friends. And through that comes a lot of stories. But right. uh, Darren and Clint um, were really excited for this reunion. So I was really happy. I got to stay with them. We got to catch up and we went out to dinner beforehand with the Boulet brothers who lovely, lovely. Yes. <laughs> they have, they have their own podcast as well. Creatures of the night, which is wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Let's introduce this. Yes. Yes. Welcome to our very first episode of ghouls on film. I'm Roman, he's Tyler, 
And for our first episode, we're going to be chatting with a very old ghoul friend of mine, Darren Stein, who you know is the director of the cult hit Jawbreaker. Everything is peachy keen. Peachy fucking keen. So let's do it. When we're back, we sit down with director of Jawbreaker, GBF, Sparkler. Put the camera on me, Darren Stone. I think perhaps you better both come inside. Tyler, should we do the top five or the say something nice? Yeah, let's do top five. So we asked you before we joined tonight to prepare your top five list of best dressed villains. (laughs) Okay. So we both kind of thought this was perfect for Darren. I love it. I love it. Okay. Number five. Okay. Number one is going to be the, the very best. So five is the fifth best. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Number five is Jean Tierney and Leave It, Leave Her to Heaven. Ooh. Yeah, I'm taking you back to the uh, film noir days. Yes, bring it to me. Yeah. Jean uh, Tierney and Leave Her to Heaven. She is a arch villain. She is soulless. And she has no moral core. And she drowns a boy. And, and she has serious shoulder pads. Yes. <laughs> she is so high glamour. Does she drown the boy with the shoulder pads? Oh, yeah. She is in shoulder pads. She's in the boat. She knows he can't swim. She knows he has, she ha- he has a, uh, you know, a bit of a, a, a physical disability, and she lets him drown. And she, and she watches. She, yeah, she sits in the boat, and she watches him very serenely and silently and just watches him drown. And it's beautiful. It, it, surprisingly, this was the inspiration for Phil Collins's In the Air Tonight. Interesting. It's also It was also Rose's, Rose, Rose McGowan's inspiration for Courtney and Jawbreaker. Is it? Yeah. Because this, this is a very Twin Peaks look that she has. It's it's very, I don't know, noir, but it's, 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 it's pantsuits. She's got these great sunglasses, the hair and makeup, the hair. It's just, it's all on point. It's very like beautiful bitch businesswoman. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah. I just love. I'm really into high fashion beauty killers. Same. Um, same. Okay, so number five is Jean Tierney. Number four, Bobby from Dress to Kill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Problematic favorite. <laughs> Problematic favorites are the best favorites. Absolutely. Uh, she's the trans killer. Uh, uh, Michael Michael Caine, you know, plays in the movie. Apparently, mm-hmm. when, when when Michael Caine is dressed as Bobby, it is not even Michael Caine playing her. Really? Yeah. If you if you research Dress to Kill, you'll is find, it a stunt double? You'll find out that that's a stunt double. So I don't know if that speaks to Michael Caine's, you know, not wanting to play a trans character or whatever. But 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 it worked really well because Bobby is really terrifying. Right. And Bobby doesn't seem like it's Michael Caine. It seems like it's a whole different... That elevator sequence is... Uh, is so good. Amazing. So good. I, I, think I mean, it, you, we, everyone just assumes it's him playing the role, so it not. might have been a financial thing. You know, w- one of the great things about making movies is, is that there's, there's those things called happy, mis- happy accidents. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one of those happy accidents. Because, I mean, for me, the, the, shower, the shower scene, the, uh, it's, it's, of course, inspired by the shower, psycho shower scene. Oh, my God, yes. I will say, for me, the Bobby... 
Angie Dickinson elevator kill, that's my shower scene. That's my that's my Hitchcock shower shower scene. Because Amazing. I saw it as a kid, and it was it was it was so brutal. I I I was I was I was literally mortified by it. I was in I was in my own private child hell in the, in the best way. Because you feel trapped yeah. as a viewer. You're you're as trapped as the victim, and that's very difficult to do. Yeah. You know what mine is for that? I think it's that first kill in Phenomena, oh, Dario Argento. There's just a slow motion shot of a girl's head going through a window and like glass falling on her face, and it scared the shit out of me. That's awesome too, yeah. I remember the maggots scene in that because Fangoria had a picture of her in that vat of maggots. Oh yeah, oh God, so gross. Um, okay, so number three is um, Tilda Swinton's Madame Marcos in Suspiria. Yes, yes, I really love that remake. Yeah. And Tilda Swinton's always a weirdo and I love her, so. <laughs> and Tilda also plays a man, an old man in it. She's like in all kinds of drag. She's up in all kinds of drag. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking at her fashion right now, and this is she's meant to be this creepy. I love it. Yeah, it's I, I had the really strange situation watching it. I was like, I love this as a teacher-student film. Like, <laughs> yeah. I wanted Tilda Swinton to be my uh, mentor. Yeah. Okay, the next best dressed, number two, is going to be Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror. Oh, of course. Because and I, it was hard, I almost put him as number one because it, it's like it is the iconic, but I had to save number one for some someone else. But so which look? Which look? Overall or every look? The leather look. Every look, honey. Every she, look. She is in a leather. She is in bondage. She is in a hospital gown with a pink triangle. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's my favorite. You know? <laughs> I mean, he, yeah. Every look. But the, I don't know if I'm sexy enough to pull off the main look, but I can definitely rock and. Emergency gown <laughs> yeah. with some the, pink the gown, gloves. The, I think that's my safety look. The gown look is so high. It's just so so. It's so hot, macabre. Um, but his first look, when he throws off the cape, obviously is the most mm. Mick Jagger moment of all time. You know. Yeah. I'm, I I still am in shock and awe of of that first moment of Rocky Horror. Isn't it weird that they were able to make something so fucking rad like that at that time? Like, very, that's very weird. So, I mean, <laughs> it's so amazing that that got made as it did. Well, that, that, you know? that's how cult films happen. Cult films are sort of like mistakes. They kind of they kind of slip through the cracks and they get, and they somehow get made. And then and then and then they're there, and then we have them forever. You know, and, that, and right, that, right. yeah, and that's how they get made. You know, Jawbreaker hardly, you know, barely got made itself. You know, that's that's how they get made. They, 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 they really slip through the cracks, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. like Rocky, you know, was a, was a stage play in New York, in England, and then and then the Roxy, and then New York, and then Fox decided to make it with the, direct, with the fucking director of the stage play, the original director. <laughs> which is like, why? why? Yeah, which but is okay. unheard of, and it's brilliant. He's brilliant, the whole thing's brilliant, it works perfectly. I will say that if I ever hear any of the music from it, or if it's on TV, I have to cancel my plans and finish it. Oh. It, is, it has magic in it that brings me back to being a child from wanting to make things myself, like it, it touched something in me that I am eternally grateful for. Well, you're a, tra you're a Transylvanian. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's Lovely party. <laughs> <laughs> no, all the, you know, all the coolest people are Transylvanians. So that, that's, that's the best. Um, okay, my number one is like, I'm so excited because 
Now we get to give her the moment she truly deserves and the film the moment she truly deserves. Uh, Catherine Deneuve as Miriam in The Hunger. Ooh. Absolutely. Gorgeous. Gorgeous movie. Yeah. It's like pencil skirts. It is like the club scene in the beginning, she's wearing like a, like a latex sailor hat or something. It's like, it's crazy. But it's, but more than anything, what I remember about The Hunger is that it's, 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 it's kind of high, it's high fashion. High fashion, very noir. It's high fashion noir, and it's impeccable hair and makeup, and it's horror, it's high fashion horror, and it's sort of an aesthetic that I adopted that came from Rocky Horror, came from The Hunger, it came from um, just anything where I saw the, the collision of horror and glamour. And The Hunger is a movie that I saw very young. It was around the same age that I saw Alien and Rocky and all that. Mm -hmm. And I discovered it in a really weird way. Like my dad brought it home. Uh, my, my, my family had a small boutique film lab in Hollywood and they did film post-production in Telecine back in the, in the 80s. And, the, and the, so he brought, he brought home The Hunger on three quarter inch tape. And I saw it way too young and I got the record and I obsessed over it, you know? So yeah. Oh, all of her, all of her stuff is Yves Saint Laurent. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's why. Yeah. I was like, I always picture the, the Bauhaus video. Yeah. I've always loved the movie. Yeah. And I've always loved her character. I just couldn't remember just how high fashion her outfits were besides yeah. the club scenes. And they're very, I honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, they're a complete match to a David Bowie style. Yeah. They're very kind of Klaus Nomi the way that she is. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Speaking of Klaus Nomi, I was, I just, I was, I was, I pitched a take. I was up to direct the new Keith Haring biopic. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it was so exciting to be in the mix of that. Harry Styles is playing Keith. Stop it. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. I mean, the script is incredible. It's, it's a very, very long shot for me because they want, you know, they're going to get probably a big director at CAA, but it was nice to be in the mix at least and get to pitch, pitch my vision for it, you know? And, Cla yeah. and Klaus, so no awesome. Klaus Nomi is a character. He's actually in the movie. So, Darren, my Capricorn sister, how are you? We, um, <laughs> it's been a long time since I saw you, and I have a question What's for you. That? Do you remember where we met? Oh my God, I'm so excited to hear the story. No, I'm asking because <laughs> I hoping... don't remember. <laughs> oh, fuck, I thought you knew. <laughs> it was been... a dark and well, stormy night. It was definitely stormy and dark, that's for sure. It was. Um, <laughs> I do. So I asked Clint, our mutual friend. Wait, what are we talking about? It's gonna come up in the story. Okay, Clint. Okay? Clint, <laughs> Clint Catalyst is like my best, my get, probably my best gay male friend. And Clint, Clint was my first, my first gay friend that wasn't, you know, hooking up. Yeah. And and that that and that friendship with your first platonic gay is is something you never forget. And. and this yeah. was back, this was like in the mid-late 90s when Clint and I moved to L.A. And that was a long time ago. But apparently me and Violet met you in a club in like 90-something. And I thought, well, I don't think we really went to very many clubs other than like Cherry or something. So it must no, have been that. Yeah, but Cherry, I went every Friday. That was like a, a big one. Yeah, so it must have been that. And Roman, I actually met you and Violet before Clint. So that yeah, we we all met in the mid nineties. I didn't yeah. mean I didn't mean Clint until after I made after I made Jawbreaker, <clears throat> you know. Yeah. I actually met I met Clint at a screening of um, shit. What's that goth movie? It's about the Night of a Thousand Stevies. Gypsy eighty three. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I met Clint at an Outfest screening of Gypsy eighty three at the Ford Theater. 
And oh. he, you know, was this big, loud Southern sissy. And I was like, I need to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, you know, gothic. And then mm. he heard I had done Jawbreaker and had a fucking shit fit because he's, he's really obsessed with, like, candy-colored goth. Yes. And, right. and the friendship began in a very suitable way, you know, at this kind of gay goth movie. Oh, speaking of goth, Marilyn Manson just followed me on Instagram yesterday. <laughs> That's awesome. All this time, finally. Well, I wasn't. I was following him years ago. I, I hadn't been following him for a while. He, out of the blue, added me yesterday, and then so I followed him back because I noticed he doesn't really follow a lot of people. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's kind of funny how life is, you know. Yeah, well, first of all, I just remember spending every day of my life, me and Violet, in her car, driving around L.A., and I I feel like we did so much, but I think we did the same five things over and over again, so... <laughs> But it was it was it was a pretty magical time, you know. But skip way ahead till right now. You're doing some kind of exciting stuff right now, right? Wait, can we just go back to Violet really fast? I think <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I think the audience will want to hear this story. Violet is like this blonde Debbie Harry meets Angeline, but like young and hot bombshell that I you know met in L.A. years ago. Again, like well, not years, literal decades ago, like the mid '90s. And she danced the cherry. She was like this kind of gal about town kind of girl. <clears throat> And when I was writing Jawbreaker, I named the character Fern Becomes Violet. And it's spelled mm -hmm. V-Y-L-E-T-T, -T, like Corvette, because that's the way a uh, woman and, and my friend, Violet, spelled her name. She spelled it like Violet. You're extra fancy. You're Violet. My Violet. <laughs> and so I told Violet, I'm like, hey, just so you know, I named this character in Jawbreaker after you, and she was thrilled. And then I put her in the movie, and she's that, like, extra you see in a lot of scenes she's always in like leopard print and she has this Iv Ivanka hair at prom and looks like way too old way too old to be in high school right <laughs> I which forgot. i love i love that about pretty much all of them there yeah <laughs> and she's see, hilarious it pays, it pays to have have friends that make movies they immortalize you it does and you know i love people i like collect you know, curiosities. I like people who are just like off the beaten track and Violet's definitely one of them. And then, and then now years later, we, I see her at Kundalini, which is like this very esoteric yoga, yoga class in LA. Mm -hmm. um, so we both become hippies <laughs> in our old age, more, <laughs> more spiritual in our old age. We're not as dead. Is she still wearing leopard print? No, Violet is, is, is definitely a lot more like subdued, but she's still beautiful. Still a beautiful. Wait, girl. we all were at the Scream Queen screening in Hollywood. Did you were? Wait, were we all? Were I was there. All? I was there. Yeah, I saw yeah. Violet. It was wonderful to see everybody. That was some. It was a magical night. But. It was a magical night. That absolutely. By the, by the way, your documentary is still just. I I just love it so much. I really? Thank I, you. Thank you so much. I can't wait to watch it again on Shutter. And Oof. I and I just listened to the Boulets the Boulay Brothers episode with uh, with your star on there, Mark Patton, which was great. I haven't listened to it yet. I've been... I did. It's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah. You lo I love the Boulets, and I love that you were on the Boulets. I love what they're doing right now. This is like the perfect thing that we need in horror. They're so. like my, my my sister witches. We're like very, very, <laughs> very good friends. As a matter of fact, they were over last night because I I showed them Santa Sangre. Okay. <gasps> oh, my God. I love that movie. Isn't it great? It's so good. Yeah. It's like a slasher movie set in a carnival. I saw it in New York at the Village, the Cinema, Cinema Village on 2nd on, uh, Avenue when I was at NYU. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Um, or who are, who are you into right now? Or who's who's been like who's your favorite director? Yeah, I mean, I would. I mean, they're not like surprising. Uh, I would say Ridley Scott for um, Alien and Blade Runner. Right. Uh, David Lynch for everything. For everything. And then Pedro Almodovar is definitely a special mm. one, a special one for me. I always re- revisit his films. Right. Rest in peace, Carl Reiner. I actually just rewatched Summer School a few nights ago. So I was like, which of your films? I'm like, Summer School. That's what I'm going to fucking watch, baby, because... <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. I love uh, horror scenes in non-horror movies. That gore scene, when he pulls the tongue out of his mouth and slaps himself in the face. Yeah. That, Hysterical. That it came my- out of nowhere, and it's, it sparked something in me that... that it changed my life, for, for certain. Well, you know, that and Mark Harmon in those little shorts. Oh, my God. I have never seen chest hair that immaculate. I know. I as a know. child, I was like, oh, Mark Harmon, you're my daddy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't he on Jag now or some show like know. that? I think he was, I on, he was on NCIS. He's like filthy rich. But yeah, summer school, I, I revisited it. It totally held up. I, w- I was shocked. I remember what I wanted to start watching Meryl's Place because Courtney Thorne Smith was from summer school. Oh, yeah. The cast is so eclectic, and it's such a it's such a... They, they go on roller coasters, and of course the two horror dudes are super fun, and the gore is so explicit. It's like right. heaven. It's really heavenly. It really is a child's, a Fangoria-loving 80s kid's wet dream. Oh, wait, and there was there was that uh, kid in that who was the stripper. Yeah. And then he shows up later in April Fool's Day. That's right. Okay. Well, you know what's funny? It's almost like summer school was infected by the 80s horror cra- horror moment. Like it, could, like, it couldn't escape it. It's interesting. Oh, absolutely. And then, of course, you have Shawnee Smith in there, too, who went on to be the queen of the Saw series as well. That's incredible, man. I only, saw, Sha- I only saw Saw 1. I'm, I'm, I'm... <laughs> you know, I saw the first three, and I was upset by all of them. <laughs> I am not a horror completist. I, I'm, not one of, I'm, not, I'm not one of these people who's, who has seen every, you know, Friday the 13th. I've seen most of them. You know, like, like, or like with, with, like, I'm very much an alien aliens person, not even, (laughs) not even alien three. Like I'm very, like I have my, I have my things. Right. Right. Is that more of like the time period in which these movies were coming out where you were super into it? Well, you know, I'm just pretty hardcore about my beliefs and the first alien was so important to me, uh, in in several ways. Like, uh, you know, it kind of formed me as a human being, I guess. I mean, it was a big, it was just a huge thing for me. And, um, and Aliens was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed it. And then Alien 3, I was like, no, boring. <laughs> I'm over this. Is there, is there a rule book that you follow with horror films? Like, well, I, do I you just, turn it off if they, if they break a rule of yours? No, I'm not like that at all. I just, I just go for the more visceral experiences. Like the modern day horror that I'm really excited about are like Hereditary and The Witch, you know? Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. And it's hard for me to get really into a lot of things. I mean, Let the Right One In was awesome. Obviously, the, the original. Oh, mm-hmm. so good. I was actually really impressed by the American remake as well. Like yeah. They were able to capture the tenderness between the two leads, which I thought was a lost cause. Yeah. And I was really impressed with the American remake of Evil Dead. The new Ooh, one. Oh, that was I, I liked that one too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you can't, it's like you can't outdo. Sam, what Sam Raimi did with Evil Dead 1 and 2. You just can't touch those. Yeah. And so I just love that they went for just the visceral, hardcore, like ultra gory experience. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> they just said, let's make something that will make you feel sick. And, I, and it was awesome. How do you feel about Drag Me to Hell? 
I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Drag Me to Hell. I had a lot of fun with it. I have, I have not revisited it. It hasn't like called me back to it. It hasn't like summoned summoned me back to rewatch. Right. But I, no, I, I'm a huge Sam Raimi fan as well, and I love his style. And he rides horror and comedy so perfectly. I don't know who else can do that. He's brilliant. I mean, Evil Dead Two especially was such a, I don't know, important experience for me when I saw it as a teenager. Um, Evil Dead Two just was like firing on every cylinder imaginable. And my very first job, I I was an intern on Army of Darkness for a little bit. Well, but yeah. wait, you were an intern on that? Yeah, I don't. I didn't get a credit for it because I was only, I only worked a couple of days. Mm. But I remember meeting Sam Raimi, and mm. he asked me the first question. He asked me was like, "How many how many uh, frames of film are there in a foot of sixteen millimeter or something?" He asked uh. me like some technical question, and I, <laughs> I, I was able to answer it. But I was like, I was so put on the spot. I was put on the spot by Sam Raimi. It was very intimidating. Oh my god! Why well, do you think he was trying to just be a bitch? No, I think he was trying. I think he was trying to bust my balls. But he, I think it was it was with, it was with love, you know. Okay, okay, <laughs> and, okay. And it, it was cool because he had the entire film. Um, there was the screenplay, and then there was this massive book where the entire film storyboarded like a big graphic novel. Oh wow! So every shot in that film was like this is before this is before there was previs. So it, it was previs like in you know with, with a with a pencil and paper, right? Is that something that you took from him, like idea-wise, and how yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. To... Of course, you see a filmmaker who does that, and you're like, Jesus, that's that's how you make a movie, you know. But I don't think every filmmaker is 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 that is that has every frame already in their head, you know. Some filmmakers right. like to just like collaborate with a DP and see how it, how it works. But I think it is great to have as much as you can pre-visualized in, in your head, and you know, being able to know what the sort of aesthetic of the film is and. Color-wise, shot-wise, you know, uh, location-wise, how it's going to work, you know. Absolutely. Did you intern on other films? No, that was that was. The, oh yeah, I was a couple. I, I also was a couple days on that Lily Tomlin search for signs of intelligent life in the universe. Are you kidding me? Holy shit! I love that. Yeah, which was a filmed. It was a, it was a filmed live thing. So that's right. Was it was it HBO or something like that? I don't remember, but it, it was shot on the soundstage. It was a cool job. Oh, God, I fell in love with The Incredible Shrinking Woman. It was my mom's favorite movie, and she was like, we're going to watch this. And I didn't realize that that was Joel Schumacher when I was a kid. So rest in peace to him as well. I know. I I found myself throughout the years encountering all of these people through my job in L.A., through my work here in New York. Like as a I would deliver makeup to all the sets in Hollywood and then here in New York they would come and do shows. Lily Tomlin was doing a show and I had to go bring her like fake cigars and props <laughs> to use on stage. I'd go in and she'd make me sit down and she'd try them out, see what she wanted. So I met all these people. I haven't watched as much as you have though, Tyler. I was taking notes for you, so don't yeah, worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you guys, <clears throat> I have a fun Lily Tomlin story if you want to hear it. Oh my God, yeah. please. <laughs> okay, before COVID, I used to go to Gold's Gym in Hollywood. Okay. And very gay. Is it cruisy there? Yeah, it's super gay, like Muscle Mary City. I yeah. saw Fabio there. Yeah, Fabio. Do you have a personal stall in the shower room? I don't do that. I don't do the <laughs> whole, like, shower hookup thing because I'm just a lady, you know? Right, um, exactly. Woo me. Woo me first, please. You know, I just, <laughs> I wish. I wish I was comfortable enough with my body and, like, my sexuality to be able to, like, be like, all right, everybody, get in line. Let's do this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... Take a number. But no, I'm not like that at all, unfortunately. But 
I was upstairs, there's an upstairs and downstairs, and the downstairs is very like all the you know the the guys working out, and it's pretty like pretty hot. But upstairs is like the cardio area, and everyone's up uh, doing other stair masters and what have you. The I want to believe that it's all pastels, right? <laughs> it's so not 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 as exciting as the '80s at all. No, oh, okay. no. My my mom did go to Jane Fonda's workout in the '80s, so she <laughs> yes, she, she had one in Encino and one in Beverly Hills. And I can tell you that story in a second, but um. <laughs> But I'm upstairs on my stairmaster, and lo and behold, who do I see? Lily Tomlin across from me, and this is just like this is just a few months ago, you know, before COVID, you know. Right. And I think I saw her there three, three or four times, and she would wear no makeup, big glasses, but they're kind of partially tinted, but not fully tinted. Okay. Uh -huh. Rose, rose or violet? I don't remember what the color was, but it was <laughs> just, just, just big enough to be, you know, don't fuck with me. Gotcha. And, and tinted in a way to be like, okay, you know, I'm, I've been in this business long enough to know to not show you my eyes right now in the morning yeah. with, no, with no makeup. Right. Um, but I was like, holy shit, Lily Tomlin goes to Gold's. This is just the coolest thing ever. <laughs> right. So you know? this is what time in the morning? Oh, it was like probably around, I don't know, 9, 9, 9, 9 9.30 in the morning. Perfect. Okay. And I'm getting on that schedule when we go back. You don't expect to see Lily Tomlin anywhere let alone Gold's Gym in Hollywood. It was, you know, just, <laughs> you know, she's still at the gym doing her thing and she's, there, there's no, there's no friend, there's no assistant, there's no well, trainer. She's, she's got to keep up with Jane Fonda getting arrested every weekend, you know? Right, the, right. She can't carry Grace and Frankie on her own. Exactly. Oh, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I have seen every episode of Grace and Frankie and I will not apologize for it. That's awesome. Well, I want to know what Darren's doing right now. Okay. Right now, I'm doing multiple things, multiple yes. pro multiple projects happening. Uh, but yeah, George Northey, who wrote GBF, he and I wrote a pilot called Infamous, and it's uh, for the CW. It's about celebrity spies. It's 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 what it's, <laughs> it takes the conceit, you know, back when like Greta Gar Greta Garbo and like Josephine uh -huh. Baker and Noel Coward were spies. It takes that idea and brings it into modern day, and there's like an actress, a model, and a pop star. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the CIA, when they have a career low, whether it's- Is this like TMZ's Charlie's Angels? Exactly. <laughs> I love that. When they have a career low, whether it's like a drug problem or like, you know, uh, a cancel culture thing or something, they get recruited by the CIA and in exchange for, you know, rebooting their careers, they basically have to go on spy missions for them, international missions. Oh my God. Um, and so we wrote this thing with CW and now we're going to be shopping it elsewhere because it didn't, it didn't move ahead of the CW, so we're going to be taking it to other places. So hopefully it'll get picked up by uh, another, another uh, streamer or what have you. What is the process of that, of like pitching a pilot? Like how do you have this idea and then go make it happen? Well, with Infamous, there were two sets of producers before uh, that were attached. The first set producer we, we kind of didn't have the same vision with. The second producer, we pitched it. We went out and pitched it, but it didn't sell. And then a year later, we found a third producer, and we sold it to the CW with, with her, with their company. So, you know, the message is, I guess, perseverance. It can happen. It Absolutely. Take, it takes time. I mean, <laughs> Lady Gaga said 99 people can tell you no. All it takes is one person to say yes. Yeah. Well, look at, look at your documentary. You guys have been working on that for, what, a decade? Yeah. 
But guess what? Oh. You yeah. made <laughs> it feels like a decade. Yeah, well, I think I aged thirty years in making that movie. Yeah, but, but the <laughs> thing is that it shows that it's, it's such a brilliant and impactful and moving and important document that you've created, and those kind of things don't happen overnight. They take time. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for saying so. Yeah. Um, and then I and, and to go to go with that theme, Jawbreaker. Okay, so Jawbreaker, as we all know, is a movie that came out in ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Over the past 10 years, we've been developing it for the stage as a musical, right? As a stage play. Yeah, right? that's what I've been reading about. Like. Right. Well, that still hasn't gotten financed fully yet, even though it's a great, it's a really, has got great music, great lyrics. I wrote the book. It's a really fun show. Well, a couple of years back, George and I, the guy you know who wrote GBF, mm-hmm. he and I um, did a reboot of Jawbreaker as a series for, and we sold it to E! as a pitch. But, right. it, but it wasn't the movie, it wasn't the characters, it was like this clique of like women in Beverly Hills and they're all like social media influencers and they mm. kill their, they accidentally kill a male stripper at their friend's bachelorette party with a job, <laughs> with, with like a jawbreaker ball gag that snaps in his mouth, Ooh. you know? Kinky. Yeah, because they have, they're like, you have to fuck him. And they're like, she's like, no, I'm getting married. She's like, oh, it's your last day, you do it. And so she's riding this guy and while he's inside her, he dies with a jawbreaker down his throat. That's like the, oh. that's like the opening scene of the, of the thing. <laughs> So they, they set all the charm of your movie on fire, essentially. Yeah, she has a line where she's like, how long was I, how long was I riding that dead dick? Oh. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I said that. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's the line that I think helps sell, sell it as a pitch. But long story short, that didn't move ahead as a pilot. And now I've just pitched to Sony, you know, the studio who made the movie, because I have to get them on board with whatever I do with Jawbreaker because they own it. Right. I just pitched them the idea of doing this as a Jawbreaker musical, the limited series. So now, okay. yeah, which is basically coming to Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everywhere but Disney Plus for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, but that would be for Netflix, like a Netflix. So that's what. So that that's moving ahead right now. We're in the process of doing a deal with Sony so we can start pitching it around. That's and, perfect. I yeah. think it would do really well like that. I mean, everyone I know loves that movie. Yeah, it's um, it's it's interesting how that happened. It was you know because it got when it came out, it made no money and it got trashed by the critics. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. That's actually kind of a, a really important theme that we have is discussing on a human level. What? How do you how do you deal with that? How did you deal with that? Well, I was so young when I made that movie. I was like twenty seven or twenty eight mm-hmm. when it came out. Twenty when it came out, I was like twenty nine. I think I don't remember, but like it was hard. It's hard to see your film get like like to hear Roger Ebert trash her movie in a really, really cruel way. Yeah. I was like, wait, you wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and you're going to come for Jawbreaker? Right. You right. Know? right. And I kind of feel like he saw a lot of himself in it. And oftentimes we're really mean and cruel to stuff that is like, that we, that's mirror, that mirrors our, our own, you know, insecurities. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's what, that's what he did. Um, but yeah, you, you sort of get over it. It's like, it's not, it's not the end of the world. You know what I mean? Right. Not every critic's like. I mean, I don't want to make a movie that every critic likes. You know, you want. I think it's great to make films that are sort of divisive and have extreme reactions, and people have opinion opinions about. You know. Yeah, it's it's just a little different when those opinions get put to paper and spread out, and then it's. I some of the stuff that they were saying about Jawbreaker was just like, it it did not seem warranted at all. Well, but you have to remember, this is like 1999. Yes. Jawbreaker was ahead of its time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, 
Ryan Murphy, what he did with Scream Queens is what I was doing, you know, 20 years ago. You know what I mean? Even yeah. even with Popular, which came out like two years later, like literally still your slow motion hallway scene. Oh. And then not, every teen movie after that did it as well. Well, that's not all he stole from Pop <laughs> in Popular. But right? like, yeah. But but a friend of mine directed Popular and she told me, she's like, Darren, just so you know, you know, because oftentimes when you make a pilot, you set the style for the, sh for the whole show. Yeah. And she said that Jawbreaker was the template for what they wanted to do visually with Popular. So, yeah, they, they totally ripped off Jawbreaker, which is fine. You know, once you make a movie, it's supposed to be there for inspiration for the, con sure. the consciousness of filmmakers in the future. But, you know, whatever. Your movie definitely came. It was ahead of its time. And the fact that it has persevered and is now beloved by so many people is important. What did you have to do to get here? It wasn't like people were showering you with money from this as soon as it came out. No, I, I, I yeah, I, you know, it's been, I didn't make a movie. My, my second film was GBF, which was like a lot, was like, what, 10 years later, 15 years later? It was a while later. Mm -hmm. GBF came out eight years ago and Jawbreaker was 20 years ago. So it was like 12 years later I made GBF. But between the, those two films, I, I made a, a documentary about the films I made as a kid. Yes, I produced. Right. I produced all about evil, uh, which is Peaches Christ movie. Yeah, right. and, our, and I, our our girl Peaches. Yeah, and mm -hmm. and I wrote uh, tons of movie that that didn't get made. I'm sorry, my dogs are fighting. Come here. Yes. Come here. No. <laughs> I, I I was working the whole time. I just wasn't getting films made, mm -hmm. and that's part of the reality. The hard reality of working in the business is it's not always easy to get films films financed. You know, like for example, like I've spent the last three years. Trying to get two different two different two different films made, mm -hmm. right? One of them was called The Invisible Boy. It's about a twelve year old girl who gets mysteriously pregnant, and she and she thinks it's by her <laughs> she thinks it's by her imaginary friend. Ooh! So it's a very heavy, and it, and it doesn't fall cleanly into a genre. It's like it has horror elements, it has like dark comedy elements, it has family drama, it has mm -hmm. you know. But it's it's very it's a very ultra kind of piece. And I had Juliet Lewis attached, then I lost her. <gasps> You oh know, my god! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Juliet and I had a really fun lunch, uh, and I went to go see her band. You know, Juliet, Juliet the Licks. I love her so when much. She was in LA, yeah. And then I had Anne Heche attached for the role that Juliet was going to play. Play. Yeah. And I had the craziest, the, the the most fun meeting with Anne Heche and Thomas Jane together ever that I've ever had in my entire life. Oh my that, god! That was wild. I can see them as a couple in my head right now, and I can't they were, wait to they, see They it. were a couple, actually. And oh, wait, weren't they in, weren't they in Hung together? Was they that were, yeah, they were in Hung, and then, Jay, and then Anne brought the project to Thomas, got him attached, and then I got Harry Connick Jr. attached and Margaret Cho. So I had, I had Margaret Cho, Harry Connick Jr., Anne Heche, and Thomas Jane, and it kind of fell apart. Oh, because, no. Because, and we had the financing ready to go, and then Harry was gonna, had to go tour, and then Anne left the management company where she was wrapped and her and Thomas broke up and the whole thing fell apart. Damn. So how do you, how do you deal with that? Like, do you start over from scratch or do you like polish it up and try to repackage it? Um, well, I ended up losing the producer on that along with the cast because after that all fell apart, the producer's like, Darren, you know, it's been three years trying to get this made. I think I need to step off this project. And I was like, then I was thinking about repurposing it as a, as a series, you know, with, with, with a writer. I didn't write that. I actually developed it with a writer. Okay. Um, but I was just using it as an example of how, and I actually have a note in my schedule to call Anne Heche today or tomorrow or text her <laughs> or email, 
and be like, hey, remember this project? Um, is this something you might want to revisit? You know, you know, I think the answer to that is just persevere. You know, you if you if yeah. you want something bad enough, you, you you keep going. You know, you seem like you've always had the gusto to to keep your head up, even as a as a young kid. Um, so were you phased by by these yeah, reactions all, yeah, to all, your work? Yeah, they're all chinks in your armor. Like like yeah. I have a, another movie called Kill the Boy Band, which is based on a young adult novel. It's basically a jawbreaker meets Hard Day's Night. It's about fangirls. <laughs> it's about a click. Yes. Of, yeah, it's about a click of fangirls who are obsessed. And they're in high school and they're obsessed with this boy band. And they go to see them perform on the roof of this hotel, this boutique hotel in Soho. And they end up killing one of them in their bedroom by accident. Maybe by accident. Maybe not. Maybe one of them. <laughs> maybe one of them didn't kill him. Maybe it was somebody else. And it's the whole mystery of like who killed a who killed him and b the girls trying to get the body out of the hotel. So it has okay. like so it has like the whole like weekend at Bernie's vibe. I'm kind of picturing um what is it? I want to hold your hand. Yes, the Robert Robert Zemeckis movie from oh, I, whenever it, I love that, that came you, out. I love that you're referencing that. That's a very obscure one. It's that and uh, Detroit Rock City, which yeah. I think are most coming to my head when I think of those things. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Detroit Rock City I saw when it came out, but that was not one of my references. But I want to hold your hand for sure. And right. uh, and uh, you know, even films like Don't Tell Mom Babysitter's Dead, uh, Love, Adventure, Love. Adventures in Babysitting, <laughs> Throw, Throw mm. a Mama from the Train. It's a real '80s '90s experience. It's a real ruthless people, ruthless people, Touchdown Hollywood films moment. Do you have an Anne Ramsey type? <laughs> yeah. there, there, well, there's a Judy Greer. Judy Greer's attached to play one of the roles. Oh my god! And then we have um, one of the actresses. One of the actresses from Riverdale attached is exciting. So I'm not going to say oh, who. Awesome. I don't want to spill it. Spill it yet, you know. But <laughs> but right, right. right now we're out with a script to like Netflix um, and a bunch of companies, and it's uh, it's hopefully going to get put together soon. Tyler, did you want to ask about GBF? Uh, yeah, I was looking over at uh, IMDb. I love GBF, by the way, and especially with what's coming out right now for gay teens, I felt like definitely it was way ahead of its time and needs and deserves more love. I had issue, or I didn't have issues. I'm interested in what your issues were with the MPAA and the R rating with that movie. Um, first, let me say I agree. <laughs> mm -hmm. GBF was definitely ahead of its time. And, you know, it's kind of a shame that Love, Simon got all the heat because it's a big studio film. Right. And well, I, I, my problem with that is, like, it seems so neutered and sanitized. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of teen films. I love everything that's come before and after. But this movie seems so scrubbed of any questionable content or sexuality that it seems more like a Christian film. No, I agree with you completely. And the lead character, the guy who plays Simon, isn't, isn't even gay in real life. Right. And, and he doesn't read as gay on screen. There's nothing about him that makes him seem even gay. So I just felt like the film was disappointing um, on a, several levels. But um, the MPAA thing was, was, was crazy. Uh, getting an R rating for GBF was right. such a joke to me because there's not even the word fuck is not even said once in GBF. Right. And there's no nudity. There's no breasts. There's nothing. There was right. there was nothing. But the fact it's, that it, it's but it's it, funny because on IMDb it shows you what the movie's rated in other countries, and in Canada it's rated G, which I find is like, oh, that's interesting. Well, it was interesting because I, you know, what what there is in GBF, which I think 
might have been disturbing to the MPAA or whatever is there's a lot of gay slang mm-hmm. that, okay. but, but the slang is about sex, gay, the slang is about gay sex. So like, there's a whole thing about rim jobs, like an art, she calls it an RJ or an, giving an <laughs> HJ or an RJ and you know, this code for rim jobs. Or there's another right. line where, you know, Tanner's like, ew, this drink tastes like ass. And then Fawcett says, oh, perfect for you. You know, <laughs> so there's a lot of innuendo about ass and gay sex. And I think that that, that alone, I guess, merits an R rating. Did you have any uh, pushback? Did you? Did I you did. Fight? I did. If you, if you, if you Google Entertainment Weekly, Darren Stein, GBF, there's a big article. There's an article. It was written about, uh, I, I, I got it out in the press, you know? Awesome. And, awesome. <clears throat> and the thing is. It was a double standard. It was a total double standard, and I thought it was unfair. And that's why I wanted to, you know, be be vocal about it, um, right. because because it was gonna it was gonna hurt our chances of getting it, getting kids to see the film, you know. Absolutely. Who who should see it? And the cool thing is, is when it was on Netflix, it was on Netflix for I want to say four years, and I think that's where it found its audience, you know. Yeah. And that's where I saw it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which which is great. We, I mean, it was completely exposed, but it's you know, and so many people. I think this is a a trait that both Jawbreaker and GBF have is that both films spoke to you know kids who were coming out of the closet, not gay yet, made them feel like they could come out of the closet, you know, which is right, which is great, you know. Well, it. I don't right. know. I just feel like out of principle, it needs to be reversed. But sure. I mean, one of to to, to cycle back to what you said, Roman, about like criticism you know and yeah. in reviews and it also happens on the internet you know there's tr- you know there's a whole culture now of people talking shit about movies on twitter on Inst- yeah. on instagram wherever right and recently just a few days ago i saw this whole big thread about gbf mm-hmm. and half of people were like this is a classic don't talk shit about it i love this movie it's hilarious it's and then there's another b- bunch of kids who are like oh, this movie sucks it's it's over now we're over this this moment's done this moment's happened yeah. And then, but they don't understand that it was that it's a, those people who are saying that don't get that it was a satire, that it was making <laughs> that it was making fun of the whole GBF thing. You know what I mean? Right. And so there's a bunch of people. You know, so I just think it's, it's <laughs> interesting how easy it is for people to turn on turn on a movie. One gay was like, "Oh yeah, I can't believe I, I can't believe I own this on DVD." I'm like, "Wait, you what? You, at one point, <laughs> you love the movie and now you're turning on it because it's not cool. Right. It's not cool that it's called GBF now. You know." It, it is it is difficult, especially when you're talking about armchair critics, yeah. too. I don't know. I think people are kind of bonding with their negativity these days, and that can be very dangerous because it's infectious. Well, I try not to say anything negative on, on my social media about any anybody's movies or anybody any other artists or directors or writers, what have you. Yeah. Right. Or uh, actors, anything. Because I don't think I just don't think it's positive. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't like that it exists in the world. Um, right. It, it's a different game once you start actually putting in the work to make stuff. You realize that everything can be ruined in a moment with a bad tweet or a bad uh, quote in the press or something. So it's like, I don't know. I'm gonna put my neck out there and talk shit about people because I know how difficult it is to make a film and how difficult it is to make a good film right you know like it's almost an accident yeah if it's good or not yeah and like like with gbf for instance that thread was was so long and so involved and so many people chiming in there's a lot of negative there's a lot of positive but mm-hmm. guess what just the fact that it's getting discussed 
and there's a huge thread that's ex- existing around it means the movie mm-hmm. is still is still being t- talked about and that's really all you can ask for like and, and so, somebody in that thread was like they, they posted a picture of Jawbreaker and they're like this became a cult classic after its time you know and they're saying the same could happen with GBF like people don't get it yet you know they don't understand that it's a satire or whatever you know right, right. so yeah I just you know I I'm I've been in this business long enough now to look at something like that and say, oh, yeah, guess what? It's attention, and that's a good thing. It's just good that it's, being, yeah. it's, being, it's still being talked about. That's a good way to look at right. it. That's mm-hmm. true. You've, if you've been through this before, you, you don't have to internalize every unnecessary insult out there. You can just be like, yeah, keep, keep it going. Yeah. That's actually good. It's nice. It sounds, it's simple advice, but it's, it's actually good to hear it every once in a while that you just have to realize that they're ch- it's chatter doesn't matter what it is yeah because guess what I, I totally search my movies i love to search jawbreaker and gbf like mm. you want to see what's being said you want to share good stuff and you want to you want to know that you know your film's still being watched but if you're going to go back and like you know search your title you're going to see <laughs> you're going to see a lot <laughs> right? of don't read the comments it's yeah. a terrible idea you're going to yeah. see some things you don't want to see and that's part of the that's part of it you know yeah mm-hmm. Switching gears a little bit, um, you've you know you've written your own stuff, you've produced your own stuff and directed, you've produced for other people, you've written for other projects you didn't direct. Which one is more uh, rewarding for you? Um, I think directing what you've written is pretty is is is, is exciting because then it's your complete vision, which was which was Jawbreaker. But that being said, you know GBF, which I did not write, but I did develop a script with a writer. It was also mm-hmm. very fulfilling. I really enjoyed that. Um, Can I ask you about that relationship? Like, how yeah. did you find your collaborator, and how? Like, what's the secret sauce that keeps you guys working together? Well, he's he's off doing his own. Th- we both do our own things as well. We're not we're not we're, we're not like constant collaborators. Mm-hmm. We, we've but you 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 have worked together more than once, we right? Have. Yeah. Well, yeah. the secret sauce is when you enjoy when you when you enjoy each other's company and you have a similar voice. And this is a similar tone and story you want to tell. You want to work. It's fun to collaborate. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, so it's great. I love, I love collaborating. I think collaborating's really fulfilling. You know, I, I don't, I don't think as a director, I would collaborate, but in the writing process, I would say yes. Um, producing all about evil for peaches Christ was something, it was a lot of fun. I love Joshua. He's one of my best friends. Right. And I, I met him years ago. He he sent me a friend request on Friendster. Remember Friendster? <laughs> the original stalking. Yeah. Yeah. He heard me on This American Life. I was I was interviewed by Ira Glass talking about the doc, my documentary. Put the put the camera on me, which you can actually watch on Prime, Amazon Prime as well. Yes. I did. Yes. I think we both did last night. Oh my god, good. I, I can't wait to, to see if you have a, a question <laughs> we're, about. We're that. gonna get we're gonna get to that in a second, but we're gonna cover our bases first. Embarrassing. Um, you ruined my intro with that, <laughs> Tyler. But okay, keep going. <laughs> uh, Peach just heard me on this American Life. He sent me a, a Friendster message, and then I was like, and then I googled Peaches, and I, I went to his website. And I'm like, oh my god, this is a drag queen in San Francisco who does like drag parodies of horror and cult movies. Yeah. <laughs> how do at, at midnight? How do I not know? How is this person not on my radar? And it just goes to show that before the internet, before you know. Twitter and Instagram, you wouldn't know what was happening in San Francisco. You know what I'm Shit, saying? I lived there at the same time and we ran in the same circles and didn't know each other. That's I mean, crazy. <clears throat> anyway, long story short, I, I, I came to San Francisco to screen, put the camera on me at, at Frameline at the Castro, and Joshua showed me his horror shorts. 
Uh, yeah, I saw them too. They're hysterical. They're hysterical. And I was like, you need to make a feature. And if you do, I'll produce it. And so I made them that promise like all those years ago. And then all those years later, he wrote the movie that was going to become all about evil. Um, and so it was a great time to collaborate with him. I, I, had, I hadn't made a film in a while. And just to produce the film and be on the set was a lot of fun. But for me, ultimately, it's not as fulfilling as writing and, writing and or directing your own thing. Right. Yeah. So being, you know, I, I enjoyed living in San Francisco for three or four months, but sitting on a set and not having it be your movie is not, not the look for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it becomes, yeah, it becomes a chore sometimes. Yeah. Those long hours. Yeah. When you've got the passion there, it like can seem like minutes, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I do have to ask about Seeds of Yesterday. How did that come about? It seems like uh, out of left field. I have to admit that the original Flowers in the Attic movie from 85 or whatever, I grew up watching and I love that movie. I love the Christopher Young score. Um, yeah. I'm connected to the story, but how did you get involved with that? Yeah, no, I think the 85, just to echo you, the 85 Flowers in the Attic is so brilliant. I love it. It's New World. It's Louise Fletcher. What's there not to love about that, right? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, take jobs as a writer. You know, I like to get paid, right? Absolutely. I, Absolutely. You know, I also wrote a Spice, a Spice Girls biopic for Lifetime that didn't get made. Excuse me, what? Yeah. <laughs> I wrote a Spice Girls biopic. I will send you guys the script if you want to read it. I need to hear more about these projects. Yeah. Um, what, what else did you write? Well, those are that's that's probably the, the exciting one. That, okay. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot more movie kind of stuff, but not with the Spice Girls. In. But but, okay. but <laughs> yeah, they were Lifetime was making all of, all of VC Andrews' bo books, and they're doing Flowers, Petals in the Wind, and then If There Be Thorns and Seeds of Yesterday. And so I met right. with, I met with Lifetime, and she said I could write either If There Be Thorns or Seeds of Yesterday. And I'm like, well, what do, you, what do you think I'm better for? And she's like, I think you'd be better for Seeds of Yesterday because it's, it's just a lot more out there, right? And it's a lot more sort of phantasmagoric. Okay. Whereas, it, whereas If There Be Thorns is more straight-up horror kind of. Okay. So I, I wrote I had the best time reading that crazy-ass book. Right. And, and figuring out how to make that into a Lifetime movie. <laughs> it was a blast. What What is the limitations of writing a Lifetime movie? Like, obviously, there's not the budget to do a, a full feature production, but... How like what kind of skills involved in writing for television? Well, it's writing is writing. Writing a movie, writing for writing for television, writing for, writing a feature, they're the same thing. It's like it's storytelling. It's the same same. You know, you just can't have any language on Lifetime. No, you know, graphic violence, obviously, or, or sexual or sex, explicit sex. But you know, thematically, they will go everywhere. Obviously, they they're into like you know, look at these books had incest. They had. You know, S and M going on. They had a, there's a lot of death and violence, religious sort of persecution. I mean, so yeah, it's just structurally you're having act breaks every every 15 or 20 minutes so they can have a commercial. You know. Okay. And do you have to like write in little cliffhangers at the end of each of those? Yes. Or? Yes. Definitely. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, it was a lot of fun learning how to write for TV and, and, and writing the Spice Girls movie and and the Seeds of Yesterday. You know. Did that carry over into? your pitching projects for TV shows? Um, no, because I mean, the projects that I've pitched have been not TV, not TV movies, but TV actually series. Okay. I've, 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 over my career, I've sold five pilots. I've sold a series, but they haven't gotten made. Um, and then I've written two TV movies. It was Seeds of Yesterday and, and, and Spice Girls. Um, so yeah, and then 
I've done t some music videos, some fashion. I did a fashion film for Alexander Wang, which was a lot oh, of fun. Wow. You, can, you can watch that on YouTube. What What is more uh, easy to make, a fashion film or a music video? They're just different. They're different. Um, you know, on a, with a they're, they're both different forms of advertising. On a fashion film, you're you're selling a, a designer. Like in that case, it was Alexander Wang. Mm -hmm. He had this really great idea for a, a really dark, dark idea for a fashion a fashion film, which I, I thought was exciting. And he sent out the Jawbreaker prom scene to ad agencies as what he wanted to do, like the style that he wanted to do it in. Okay. Yes. And so one, the ad agencies contacted me directly and said, why don't you just get the director who did Jawbreaker? And so I got, and I, I still had to pitch myself for that job, but I got hired to do it, which was great. Which is wild. Yeah. It's like, this is the style you want. I'm the guy who made it, but I still have to prove to you that I'm the guy to do this, right? Yeah. I still had, I still had to pitch. Yeah. But that fashion film was voted, it was the top, it was in the top 10 fashion films of the year from Business of Fashion. That's awesome. And it was actually number five out of the 10, which is great. Um, and it won a Clio Award as well, which is like an advertising award. And then the music video I did for Deep Valley is really fun because I got to put my friends are in the band, first of all. I love hard rock. I love females who rock. And they put out their second album called Femagism. <laughs> and, they were like, yeah. and they were like, here's the demo. Which song do you want to do? And I was like, oh, I want to do uh, Little Baby Beauty Queen because it, it, it's sort of based on the JonBenet Ramsey uh, murder. Stop. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tyler's you, obsessed I now. am obsessed, yes, yes. <laughs> we, we showed in um, Denver, Colorado, and I, I made our friend uh, drive us around to the... Jean Benet Ramsey memorabilia. That That's amazing. Could find Tyler and I bonded over our <laughs> our yearly love of Heather O'Rourke's passing. <laughs> I don't. That's, that's a really dark so way of saying that. Weird. Uh, <laughs> but it's like it hits us once a year. We we like I revel in this like what the hell? But right. Carol Ann. It, it was a it was a confession to you that. <laughs> Once or twice a year, I will read Heather O'Rourke's Wikipedia page, <laughs> and it will bring me to tears every single time. But it happens. But, but twice I've never a year. met anybody else who done who's done that, and I I am the same way. And I'm like, why? That's so weird. I never got over it. Anyway, we <laughs> right. The, this is what we. I we love that. About. This <laughs> is this is why we knew we were uh, good Judies and could make a film together. Well, yeah. you guys, yeah, you guys really did collaborate really really well on that film. But, 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 but I, that's the power of cinema. You know, you see Poltergeist as a kid and it sticks with you, you know, and her, and then so when some, when, the, when a Carol Ann dies, I mean, she came back from the other side and Polter, Poltergeist. Yeah. And so, right. then, so then to be plucked off this earth as a, as a little girl is really disturbing. Yeah. It was, it was, it's, a, it's such a tragic story and the way, the way the teenage daughter died as well, killed by her, killed thing. by her boyfriend. Um, ugh, ugh. But I was actually fr I was friends for a bit with Oliver Robbins, who played the little boy who was eaten by the tree. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He's a director now, right? Yeah, he. I had a friend in high school who was close with him. I'm like, oh my god, you know the boy from Poltergeist? That's so cool. Um, <laughs> so I was, was gag. You got to grow up around a lot of people like this. I did grow right? up. Yeah, like I went to high school with Anthony Perkins' son, Osgood Perkins. Oh mm -hmm. wow. Um, you know Sally Field's kids. Uh, I went to my high school. Uh, Wait, the gay one? Uh, yeah, they both did. Yeah. But, I, but I'm, I'm older than the gay one. It was, so I, I knew his older brother, but even his older brother was younger than me. Um, She's not calling you trying to set him up with you? No, no, no. It's, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not as glamorous as it seems, the whole thing. But I will tell you, the one, the one child actor that I met that I'm still friends with to this day, whose movies really rocked my world, was Josh, Josh Miller, who was in Near Dark and River's Edge. And, oh, and, and, Teen, yeah. and Teen Witch. 
you know? You're still friends with him? Yeah, we're really close friends. Like, not Josh actually is the one who brought Rose McGowan to Hollywood. Really? Yeah, oh, jo- wow. Josh was in a movie called Class of 1999, which is, a, okay. which is the sequel to Class of 1984. Yeah. And they shot that in Seattle. <clears throat> and Rose was an extra in Class of 1999. And if you watch that movie, you'll see her. And she's like, vamping for the camera she's like one of those extra <laughs> she's like one of those extras that's trying to vie for trying to get too much attention right you know? <laughs> so i met i met rose at club makeup one night in the bathroom oh of course you did yeah <laughs> and i know exactly what you were doing in there yeah <laughs> um, was it makeup it wasn't it makeup. was it wasn't was powdering makeup. my nose it wasn't makeup yeah <laughs> right. it was a powder it was a very white powder Oh, Rose. Um, yeah, she, mm, no, and she... Rusty pipes. No, and she and I are still, to this day, very close. So, um, I love you. They were they were boyfriend and girlfriend on that movie. And he brought her to Hollywood. He's like, you're so beautiful. You have a face of an old... Like well, like Marilyn Manson said, the face of a dead star. Mm, so, right. so, Rose got discovered from the Jim generation because she was on a Stairmaster, you know, on Beverly and like... <laughs> They they had, they, had, they, had, they had cast Jordan Ladd in the part. The stairway to heaven. Yeah, Jordan Jordan Ladd got cast in the part, and then Cheryl Ladd, her mother, read the script and goes, "There's no way you're doing this movie Oof. over my dead body." And then they they were scrambling to find someone, and then a producer saw Rose on a stairmaster and brought her to Greg. I love Greg in the window. Yeah, and then I saw Doom Generation at a screening in Santa Monica, and was mesmerized. I was like, "Who is that woman? Who is that girl? She's fucking amazing." You know, did you see a, a now apocalypse? I, I did not. Please, I I have talked about this so much, and no one has seen it. And it, I mean, obviously, it isn't going to continue. But that first season is so worth it. I was so impressed with that. Anyway, continue. Oh, <laughs> um, I want to. I mean, Greg's an old friend too, so I definitely would love to check it out. You know, one of the best uh, finales to a season I've ever seen. Wow! Just so you know. <laughs> it involves penises and aliens. You've said too much. You've said it's too much. Fabulous. It was fabulous. It sounds very, very, very Gregoraki. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think you have a very great sense of music and cues, and especially in Jawbreaker. Like anytime I hear Imperial Teen, I know exactly what's going on and what I'm supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. and that is to like strut down a hallway <laughs> as seductively as possible. <laughs> Like, um, like everything is peachy fucking keen. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just like, and anytime I see it in a movie that is stealing from Jawbreaker, I sing to myself that song. And I'm wondering, did you have that in mind? Did someone bring that to you? How do you find the music that you use? Um, well, first of all, when I wrote that scene, it was very much like, I want this to be the, the iconic hallway walk of all hallway walks. So and I, it definitely yeah, is. Yeah, and I, I wanted it to be like a Western, like, you know, when the, the, when the men, yeah. or, or like in, in, Res, in Reservoir Dogs, when they were walking in slow motion, the gangsters. Right. I wanted it to be that, but with, for high school girls. And because the craft did it before I did it, I mean, it, but it wasn't quite the same. Right, but it, it wasn't as, like, intentional. No. Like, no. that was a montage, and that just happened. Yours yeah. is like, this is the fucking moment. We will not cut away. Yeah. This is it. That was the most, yeah, and I think that's why it's like the favorite films of drag queens everywhere. <laughs> First of all, I want to know, like, how do you direct that scene? What do you play for them to get in unison? I don't remember what we played on the set. I don't think we played anything. I think they were all excited about the, I mean, listen, they're wearing those outfits. 
They know they're yeah. in, they, they know they're in slow motion. They're lit. There's a white light, you know, belting, you know, blasting them down the hallway. Like so, when, when Rose does that that moment where she makes her hair fly, that was very much intentional because she knew it would be in slow motion. Fantastic. And you know, we, when you read that script, that, that that is the metaphor for the entire film. But as far as music, one of the, I remember one of the main songs we tried was. Our lips are sealed, but not the Go-Go's version. It was the Fun Boy Three version. Yeah, that has a good beat. Yeah, which is like slow down. I think we tried like, I'm not sure if Elastica's song came out yet. That like connection song, or or like, oh yeah, or like, or like that Breeders song, like Cannonball. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was like that, but none of them were quite right. And then our music supervisor was like, "Oh my god." And by the way, Imperial Teen, I already knew and loved, okay? I had that first album. I had the biggest crush on Will Schwartz because he used to come and hang out at my coffee shop in San Francisco when you came out before Jawbreaker, correct? No, no, no. It came out with Jawbreaker. Jawbreaker came out... That's synergy. Yeah, and it was before that album had come out. So so basically, that song, You Who got branded with Jawbreaker because because they because there's a music video that came out with the movie, right? Right. Really? And 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 one here's something funny, Roddy Bottom, you know, from from Imperial Teen and Faith. Yep. And oh, Faith. he's a friend of mine. Yeah, he's my friend too. He did the score for my documentary for Put the Camera uh-huh. on. Me. I Tyler and I spent a lot of time really like going back through 80s films and you know, Nightmare 2 has the dance scene. And everyone talks about the dance scene and like everyone likes to call Nightmare 2 gay because of that dance scene. And it is actually one of my favorites, but like I now have a new favorite dance scene that I never have seen before. And it actually is to one of my very favorite Berlin songs of all time. Um, do you know what it is? Yes, yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> it's my dance scene from Put the Camera on Me when I'm a little boy fagging out in my bedroom. Rumor of Love by Berlin. Yeah. Holy shit, you were a cool little kid. I was cool. I was really You're cool. wearing a Frankie Goes to Hollywood t-shirt. I know. You were giving me more than I ever thought I needed right there. <laughs> that was awesome. I'm so glad that I had, that my brother filmed that and we have that. I mean, I was giving you like, you know, an Instagram moment, a TikTok moment. <laughs> right, right. You know, years, decades before that ever happened. I definitely think that there's a video like that of myself at five years old dancing in the back of a pickup truck to Madonna's Like a Prayer. Oh, I love that. I think that's just like what happens to gay people when they're young. Yeah, they get, they, they get possessed by the dance demon. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, but you, you were listening to good music. Yeah, well, I went to, I was always into New Wave and like, new wave music, you know, and yeah. I remember in sixth grade, I was dating a girl named Amy Levinson, mm. and her, sis- her sister had turned her on to Berlin, so we were into like Adam Ant, Berlin, all that stuff back back when I was like 10, 11 years old, you know, like super young, and yeah. Rumor of Love was like a B-side, I, I had that on a 45, yep. and it was one of the only songs that the, a male vocalist sings in Berlin, you know, right? And, you know, I was a little diva, so I had to writhe around on the floor and do my thing. <laughs> I was so happy. That album is one of my, I mean, start to finish that album is Love Life is fantastic. Uh, it was just remastered and that song is on there. So when I saw this and I saw a little Darren Stein like <laughs> getting fierce, I'm like, this is outstanding. I'm so glad you have that. And I'm so glad that you put it in there, you know? You know what? One of the main reasons that why I made a documentary is because I was so embarrassed about myself, about how gay I was as a kid and androgynous and 
other, everything weird, I was embarrassed, you know? Yep. And, and all those movies were like proof and everything. And I kept them hidden, like Gay as a Whistle, that little movie I made, I kept that hidden right. from it. I didn't show that to anybody because it was, it was proof and everything. And especially that, movie, that one of me dancing. And later in life, I'm like, fuck it, I'm gonna make a documentary about growing up and discovering myself and like working out my identity through this group of kids and own it and you know, not be ashamed of it anymore. And that's why I spent two years of my life making a, making a documentary more than anybody, it was, for, it was for me, you know? Absolutely. So it's called Put, Put the Camera on Me. And it came out in 2005, right? Yeah, it played like all the gay film festivals. And then it was released actually on DVD through Wellspring. Really? Yeah, there's a trailer for it on like Tarnation. It, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And Jonathan Coet's a good friend of mine. And Jonathan Coet's movie is so brilliant. I mean, totally steal uh, the much grittier, the much more like, I don't know, artsier version of Put the Camera on Me. And, right. uh, they kind of go well together, I guess, because one's like a very kind of safe suburban version of the gay kid, and one is a family with like drug use and mental illness, and like it's a much, you know, a lot, it's a lot hairier, you know? Right. Well, okay. I, I mean, watching Put the Camera on Me as another gay man, I'm able to recognize a lot of myself in a lot of what was happening. And without you even telling me that why you did it, I could understand that. Yeah. It's, it's an absolute shedding of all of the baggage. You know? Yeah. And I think that's absolutely commendable. Thank you. Right. I definitely felt a kinship with you. Uh, but the film opens up with everyone gathered around a record of shock treatment. <laughs> um, as like, what, like eight-year-olds, seven-year-olds? That's not the typical film that a group of kids that age would be into. The first film I ever made as a 10-year-old was uh, stop animation video of Rocky Horror Picture Show. I love that. And I would move the toys one frame at a time and play the soundtrack on a tape recorder <laughs> for one second. And I did the whole movie that way. And I was like, oh, yes, yes. We've always known that we're gay. We've always known that we're weird. And it was, it was awesome to get like a high five from you through that, through that image. Oh, that's so sweet of you to share. And thank you. <laughs> I, I was like you, you know, th but there's a certain brand of gay kid, and I think Roman, and you, you both are like this, that was drawn, <laughs> that, that was drawn to like the weird shit, you know what I mean? Right. And Rocky Horror and Shock Treatment, yeah. I mean, Shock Treatment, I had the record, Rocky too, I had the record, and I listened to them on repeat, and I, and I couldn't, I, I remember the first time I saw Rocky, a friend had a bootleg like Betamax, you know, <laughs> and I saw it when I was like 10 or 11, and then Shock Treatment I actually had a shock treatment birthday party where a group of kids. <laughs> <laughs> that is Say no amazing. more. Say no more. Yeah, we went to the theater in Westwood and all these kids, it was like the matinee. I'm sure every kid was like, what the fuck is this? And, <laughs> right. you know, and then, and then, and then, you know, I did a whole performance of side A and side B of the record when I was like, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. And that's what you saw. That's, that's what those clips were from. I, I find it interesting. Like, I grew up on movies like this, and I didn't know what Star Wars was until it was re-released in the 90s. Wow. Like, I grew up watching Spaceballs every weekend and thinking it was hilarious, and I had no idea what Star Wars was. Wow, that's wild. Or, that, and you, and you probably, that's weird. And you probably had no idea what Alien was. Right, right. No. So when I finally saw Alien and I see the chest bursting thing, I'm expecting it to start singing. And right. It did right. It. <laughs> That's so funny. 
right. singing. Yeah, sci-fi entered my filmmaking um, education way late. So I don't think I saw Alien until the week before Prometheus came out. Wow. And I, saw, I was lucky. I had just moved to New York, and I saw it at the uh, Lincoln Film Society on the big screen. And I was so tense, yeah. that entire movie. And then, then I started watching the rest of the movies, and they're, they're fantastic. I mean, Alien, the movie, is like a, symf- it's like a symphony. It's like a, yeah, it's like a, go- it's a gothic symphony. It's, like, it's, it's such a masterpiece. It's, it's not even, it's startling, you know, how, per- how perfect it is. I, you know what's so funny? Al- the first Alien, my, just like with, with Rocky and Shock Treatment, my exposure to those were the records. Oh, and, that, and I had this Rocky Horror fan book that I poured over that I got from B. Dalton. But, mm, but B. Dalton. B. Dalton, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were your favorite, favorite 80s bands? In the 80s? Oh, Jesus. This is so hard because there's so many. I know, oh, but, but like, you must have had like your favorite albums. Like Depeche Mode, for sure. Yeah. Did you see them live? Yeah. Tell me you didn't go to the Rose Bowl. Yeah, yeah. Shut up. Yeah, the Rose Bowl show. Yeah, that was like that was the iconic show. Ugh. Yeah. I dated, I, I dated a girl just because she was obsessed with Depeche Mode. I was obsessed. I still am obsessed with Depeche Mode. Well, you know what? You know what? Uh, I went to go interview Depeche Mode in Serbia wow. for Pitchfork, <laughs> and it was the weirdest job of my life. Wow. But I was very happy to be there because I got to see the show for free, and I danced my life away. Mm. Well, for me, it was like Depeche Mode, The Smiths, and Susie, and The Cure, mm-hmm. and The Cure. Um, what was the first concert you saw? My very first, oh, this is the gayest, okay, this is, you guys are going to love this. <laughs> the Go-Go's Vacation Tour at the Hollywood Bowl. Amazing. Oh my my the first, Vacation Tour. My first was New Kids on the Block. What? Nice. That's terrible. And what was I it? I am not proud, <laughs> And what was your kind of the, the Go-Go's are fabulous. Mine was The Cure. What? Yeah. How old were you? Oh, you poor thing. Uh, how old was I? Yeah. Um, how old was I? Uh, eighth. It was the end of eighth grade. So I don't know how old that is. Wait, but probably two years before, three years before I could drive or something. So you were wait. You were born in seventy seven. Yeah. So you're six years younger than me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but the Go-Go's vacation tour. I was like eight, eight or nine years old, and I was like, I want to see the Go-Go's. So how did you get? <laughs> who, did your dad go with you or no, something? No, my cousin Sharon, who was super cool. Yeah. Took me. We waited in line. It was a huge line to get tickets. I, I mean, I got my fucking life. I, it was my, it was my vacation fantasy, you know. And then when yeah. I, and then when we shot Peaches Christ movie all about evil, at the rap party in this club, there was like a drag show, and I dressed in drag, and I did, <gasps> and I did vacation. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, all I ever wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 uh, I danced around to my bedroom a lot. Uh, what was another early concert I saw that was really... Oh, in ninth grade, when I was 14, I saw Susie and the Banshees at the Palladium. It wow. was it was It was Susie and Love and Rockets. Shut up. And I was so... I was so... <laughs> I was so uncool. I had no friends that were cool enough to go with me. And my dad went with me. And... <laughs> That's uh, beautiful but, and hilarious. Yeah. That's pretty cool, actually. But that was, my, yeah. that was my first punk show, and that was a real eye-opener because... The smell of cloves was so intense. Yep. And then, you know, and then, and then seeing the mosh pit and realizing how hardcore Susie was. I didn't realize there was going to be a huge mosh pit, you know? The cure. The fucking cure. I, like, 
my friend lost her shoe and like <laughs> someone's glasses like it was a crazy pit like people forget that like they might be delicate goss but they get wild yeah Susie Susie's show was 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 an eye-opener I I want to say that we saw two girls eating in a 69 eating <laughs> eating each other out on the stairwell to the balcony <laughs> you and your dad me and my dad did you step over them <laughs> how does that even work <laughs> On a stairwell. Well, there, well, because there's a there was a landing. You know, it was like a two part stairwell, <laughs> and I we we got to the Palladium. It became apparent very fast that we weren't going to speed downstairs because of the mosh pit. And I was like ten, you know, ten. I was like fourteen or whatever. And so my dad was leading me up the stairs, and I remember walking over this lesbian couple on a sixty nine. Yeah, but that that might just be that might just be my active imagination. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I did actually, they were just doing their taxes. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think I think I think I, I think I got a high on cloves. I don't know. I think I got I think I got goth. It was like goth overdrive. Oh, so it's like maybe this was something you were. Yeah. Anyway, we don't need to. I think it was a fan. No, I, think, I, I think it was a fan. I think it might have been a fantasy. But his I, hair has been crimped ever since. Eyeliner. As we wind down, we want to play one more game with you. Um, it's kind of a, a quick answer game. Roman and I will give you a polarizing subject, and your job is to say something nice about it. Okay. You can be sarcastic, you can be sincere, but you must say something nice. Okay. All right. It's about Wait, am I starting, Tyler? You, you certainly are starting right now. <laughs> All right. Say something nice about Encino. The birthplace of the Valley Girl. You know, like, yeah. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Perfect. Say something nice about drive-ins. You get laid in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> Say something nice about Angeline. Longevity. <laughs> Say something nice about whispering. What? <laughs> Say something nice about whispering. Um, Where would you even get that? <laughs> One, Tyler. I would... I'm canceling that one. <laughs> no, I can think. I can think of something. No, okay. okay. <laughs> something nice about whispering. Uh, it, it's it's um, manners. Did you say manners? Yeah, because you're having maybe you're, it's good manners. Well, it's not. It's rude to whisper, but it's also at least I don't know. Whatever, cancel it. Yeah. Say something nice about cancel culture. Mm. That's a tough one because I, I I don't love cancel culture. I don't really agree with it, but some people should take a time. Oh, okay, okay, I'll say, I'll say this: timeouts can be good. There you Ooh, go. That's a very good one. Okay, last one. Yes. Say something nice about film ratings. Strangers buying your way in. What? Sure, no. Right? Okay, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Get, getting a stranger to buy your way into the film as a kid. Okay. Or, All right. Or something nice about film ratings? I don't know. No, I'll, I'll, no, I'll say this: Midnight Cowboy was rated X, and it still won Best Picture. There Work. you go. Work. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Katrina. <laughs> why are you calling? Um, why are you calling me but, Katrina? Oh, it's uh, from "Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's oh, Dad" right, right. when she's like kicking a girl off stage. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you, Katrina. Um, before we go, you have the floor to assign homework to anyone. Anything that you're watching, reading, listening to that you love, that you think other people should check out. Uh, let's hear it. Um, loving what we do in Shadows on FX. Oh, 
my yeah. favorite show after Strangers with Candy. I'm jumping in this week. I'm ready. I'm ready to watch it. And shout out yes. to my friend Harvey Guillen, who plays Guillermo. Hopefully he'll get an Emmy nomination. Woo. Um, I just watched uh, season three of Search Party on HBO Max, which is hilarious. I love that show so much. I, I devoured it in one sitting. And yeah. Going. I have yeah. a lot of friends who are involved are on it and just they're all brilliant and it's hilarious. I haven't, seen, I haven't seen Search Party yet. I will put that on my it's list. It's on HBO Max. You can use my login. Okay. Um, I need to talk about Chantal because she's my favorite thing on that show. Oh, she's so She funny. cracks me up every single episode. Oh, so funny. Thank, thank you, you so much for talking to us. Yes, thank you, Darren. Where can our uh, listeners find you? Uh, Instagram is at Darren Stein, and Twitter is at Darren Stein. There you go. Beautiful. How can you go wrong? Oh, good. I'm so glad we got to catch up a little bit, too. So I listen, know. go go have dinner. All right. And I will, I will text you. All right, bye, guys. Thank All you. Right. Bye. bye. Oh, my God.